Hello and welcome. The following is a conversation with Bob Stern, Associate Professor of Computer Science at the Department of Speech, Music and Hearing at KTH in Stockholm. Through his work and research, Bob specializes in the implementation of machine learning and AI applied to music data. He's also PI of Mosaic, Music at the Frontiers of Artificial Creativity and Criticism, a project which studies how AI can transform the three interrelated music practices of listening, composition and performance, analysis and criticism, with a focus on Irish and Swedish music. He has also started Tunes from the AI Frontiers, a blog where he documents his performances of compositions that have been generated by transformer models. The links to which will be provided in the show notes, and I truly recommend that you check them out. I was deeply honored that he agreed to participate in this conversation. I am Abed Fayers, and this is the AI pod. I hope that you enjoy the program. So, uh, what is music AI, uh, and how is it made? What are the different techniques that are used for making it? Uh, uh, mm. Your question is about what is the application of artificial intelligence to music, or uh, no? Mostly about how do we create music through AI? What are the uh, current techniques? Is it through machine learning at the moment? Is it through deep oh, learning? Okay, I see. Uh, the creation of music can happen many ways. Um, in in one sense, it's picking up an instrument and um, exploring the 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 instrument itself, the um, how the body responds to the instrument, um, how the instrument responds to the space in which you're playing, um, improvisation or you know, exploring these things, or it may be the creation of music might involve um, a piece, a pre-composed piece, or uh, there's a, this, the statement, the, uh, the underlying fact here is that music can be created in many ways. And the involvement of machines is just one way of assembling material or interacting with material to um, participate in this cultural activity. I want to um, tra- draw a distinction between music as a product and music as an object and music as an activity. The application of machines to music or art creation is nothing new. It's been happening for many years. And in one sense, you can see just the machine as a tool, a technology, much the way that oil in in uh, the use of oil as a medium for suspending pigment to apply to a canvas was a tool it was a technology and that kind of technology allowed for uh, new effects to be created uh, on the canvas let's say a computer um, a statistical machine um, a, a looking up you know items in a table a rolling dice, um, the creation of complex machine learning models. And um, these can all be ways to create material for this cultural activity called music. 
But so your description of it is it's more of a tool uh, at the current stages. It's a tool. Yes. It's a tool in in much the same way that other technologies have come and made things possible in other realms of artistic practice. So I think there's a, there's a subtext to your question in that we live in a time where the reach of this technology is becoming such that we are cautious or maybe a bit pessimistic or frightened of the implications of this kind of technology. One being the uh, redundancy of humans, for instance, or in other words, the lack of employment, the uh, automation of labor. Um, there's, uh, there's many issues here that are interesting on top of the underlying technologies that are applied or these technologies that are oftentimes reinvented and applied in a context where data has increased an enormous amount, computation accessibility has increased, efficiency of algorithms have increased, and the, the global connectedness of people and things that such that you can create a 24-hour Twitch stream of automatically generated um, music, or in a recent case, Seinfeld episodes or Seinfeld-like episodes where you know one machine learning system is being used to generate texts that is then read by voice models of actors and um, you know these these interesting applications of generative algorithms. I think this is a. I'm just thinking aloud here in terms of all of the kinds of um, subtexts when somebody asks, you know, what is AI music. There's many ways to answer that. But wouldn't you say, or at least in, especially in deep learning techniques, that perhaps the piano is playing itself without the pianist? Mm. I mean, isn't it, you describe it as a tool perhaps for artists to create music at this stage, but mm. aren't we moving towards a path where these devices can create music just on their own, Uh, we've been there for many, many years. There's a there's a kind of piano called a disc clavier that's created by Yamaha, and this is a real piano by the looks of it, but internally it has machinery that it can play itself. This is like the player piano technology from you know the twenty early twentieth century. Uh, no, I mean uh, not necessarily in terms of automata. <coughs> uh, another example of that. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Like Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another example of that uh, was this some sort of a hurdy-gurdy type of a machine that played three violins at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, more in terms of the composition itself, mm -hmm. aren't we moving towards a state where the what we have as input is not necessarily the core of what is being created? the deep learning mm -hmm. uh, uh, machine is itself just creating this type of music just by a, a very short request that we have towards it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's It's been that way for many, many, <coughs> many, many years. You mentioned uh, the dice game, um, this approach to generating a, like, 
something that sounds like romantic piano music by rolling a die and assembling measures, precomposed measures, based on the outcome of the die. This is, in some sense, a very simple technique to create music, um, create a, a, a script by which music can be um, played. So for those listeners that don't know, just the dice game, uh, were a series of different dice games created uh, by, amongst others, uh, Amadeus Mozart, uh, to, uh, of different compositions that were put together as some sort of a game, and uh, one would roll two dice and uh, create some sort of a waltz. And uh, I uh, read Mozart's uh, own instructions about this, which I found to be very amusing, which is instructions for the composition of as many waltzes as one desires with dice without understanding anything about music and composition. Mm -hmm. So it is a pathway even at that dice game stage uh, towards creating music. But in that uh, level, it's just the randomness that you throw to dice. But at this level, uh, it's a prompt that the user might be giving uh, to create a very specific type of music. Mm-hmm. Preceding that, there was a um, procedure, or invented several procedures for generating music for uh, liturgical context. So this Arca uh, Miserythmica was sort of designed, this is a box with pegs in it, or tablets, uh, that provide instructions for composing church-like music. This was invented in the 17th century, early 17th century, and can create um, an endless variety of sort of music for liturgical contexts, for religious ceremonies. Uh, And this precedes the musical dice game by, you know, a century or more. Um, And it's interesting to reflect on a more popular application of this music generation, which is creating waltzes, and a and arguably secular, and a religious context, where again the the arca musarithmica, in some sense, was built for people who didn't have the understanding of counterpoint or harmony to construct this material. But an interesting aspect of that is that the author or the creator of this um, seemed to have. Uh, the perspective that the output of this approach, this algorithm, it wasn't a machine, it was a box of tablets that you, by instructions, assemble, creates raw materials that need refinement by somebody who knows about music. And so it got to the outline of a piece, let's say, that could then be improved upon by somebody who knew what they were doing to prepare it for performance. But that's... Basically, to a certain degree, my question is that there is, is there a need for the musician? Is there a need for the composer that uh, creates this game with many different compositions? Mm-hmm. At the current level, there is no need, perhaps, anymore for anyone to really understand the music. Mm. And that gets at the heart of the, the, the claim that I want to dispel, that music is a product that music is the sheet of music that has notes or dots on it, that music is the, the recording on a CD or a download from Bandcamp. That's 
that's um, <clears throat> a really um, restricted way to view music. Music is an activity. It's a cultural activity. It involves a person engaging with the history of what they've heard in the past. And perhaps communicating some message or communicating some emotion that is um, not easily described by words. Uh, it's not the recording, though, that is the music here. And so people mistake the music for the product, and then it's very easy to see. Machine can produce the product, too. The machine can produce the product at a cheaper cost than the human. Therefore, we'd have no need for human but music, when you see it as an activity, as a cultural activity that people share, you can't divorce the human from that. The human is, say, augmented but with the machine. The human is augmented with software that allows them to uh, create sheet music, uh, that allows them to master recordings on their own, to submit to Bandcamp, to develop a following. But the, the music is what happens around what we see as the product. And with that richer perspective of music as an activity, you can see the machine as a tool, as a maybe in some sense a co-creator. It's much more like these tools are becoming much more than just a word processor. Right, you have Microsoft buying ChatGPT to integrate this within the Word docu uh, words um, or whatever application they're creating. And I don't know if you've used ChatGPT yet, but it's a very um, it's it's a tool that can be applied in a diverse number of situations. Where when you're working with it, when I'm working with it, it becomes more, much more of a co-creator than a word processor. Let's say so. These um, AI systems that are being trained on lots of music, they're becoming partners in the creation of music, which is, at the core, a human activity. Now, considering the current state of the world in the sense of capitalism and the um, uh, neoliberalist perspective that profits and, and making money is sort of the, the goal that things that make money are good and things that don't return a profit are not desirable. It's easy to, to see that uh, in some contexts where music is needed for commercials, um, uh, for, for, sailing, for selling things, that the desire is to reduce the amount of money needed to market a product and thus increase revenue and profit. And in this sense... There's a threat to a musician's ability to earn money doing tasks that they used to earn money for. They have to take on many more, say, freelance jobs in order to make ends meet now because some companies are employing algorithms now to create hundreds of thousands of hours of production music that is high quality, enough quality that is quite quickly applicable to a commercial, that it is threatening the livelihood of composers that would make their money otherwise so two different perspectives here i can say music is a cultural activity don't worry ai is just a tool it's a it's a partner in music creation but the human is always a part of it but there's the other perspective is that there's a real need for music as a product and this is where 
the application of these technologies. Some people call it democratizing. That now you you don't need to hire a team of artists to to do branding. Let's say you can do it yourself by interfacing with ChatGPT, Stable Diffusion, um, you know, Music LM. Maybe you've seen this recently, and then this will get you most of the way there at a far cheaper price. And then we have a lot of people that can't make ends meet to practice their art. So what is the solution then? Well, I, in my opinion. Um, society needs to step up and uh, and um, put a value on art as an essential part of being a human being in some country, in some place. Uh, whether that's a universal income, whether that's government-subsidized cultural activities, like in Sweden, there's some support to subsidize choreographers and playwrights and, and musicians who are actually trying to be full-time artists. There's fellowships. Um, there's grants. Artists, though, the, you know, it becomes... There's a lot of solutions out there. Um, but society as a whole, whether it's within a nation or within a you know a global community, needs to move beyond trying to pay the least amount of money for a product, Right? A lot of people expect to get music for free. They pay a subscription to Spotify or Netflix and they get all this content for free. Uh, you have people that don't want to pay for these big corporations that control the media and so you've got piracy and whatnot. But really we are trying to get away with not paying the true cost of things. I think it, it, it's a core problem of a society that's steeped in sort of capitalistic uh, neoliberal tendencies. You raise quite a very many complex problems mm -hmm. there. Uh, but if we begin uh, unwinding them one by one, uh, let's begin with perhaps the democratization of mm -hmm. music. Uh, I remember uh, in an interview with a relatively young Kanye West before all the anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. uh, he was talking about how a uh, digital drum set had provided a tool for him to create, as he called it, dope music. Uh, whereas otherwise he would have not had any access to all these different uh, sounds that he was able to put together with just this digital drum set. Uh, so from that perspective, I think that there's definitely a case for people that normally don't have access to uh, any real tools to create music as they are very expensive, hmm. uh, mm -hmm. or can be at least. Uh, and that is a very beautiful thing, I think, that people, I think everyone has some sound, some melody in their mind, and perhaps these tools are the best way to produce them and bring them out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> from another perspective, one could say, and... Uh, we see it now with ChatGPT. This is a really good, relatively good programmer, uh, and uh, as a programmer, as we discuss our role in the society of the future, uh, the fact that no longer one might no longer need to learn a musical instrument or need to learn programming, the pain of having to learn the 
how to stroke a violin is something that is in itself perhaps part of the musical training mm. don't you think mm-hmm. that yeah. perhaps that part of that romantic part of having to go through the grind of it uh, is something that might be disappearing with this mm. Mm. kind of i think that there's a lot of things to uh, to address here um, first of all democratization this is a word that is um, used quite often by um, companies and tool developers providing these services uh, without thinking about what does it mean democratize, democratization. Democ- this is referring to democracy, which is kind of a form of government in which uh, votes are held, a majority, um, you know, the decision of the majority gets its, gets its way. Uh, where's the voting in, in, in this, the, the marketplace in which these tools are supposed to be democratizing? Things I think what is meant instead of democratization is um, you know a reduction of the cost of access maybe mm-hmm. to this technology that becomes available to more people. Although you know to use these kinds of technologies requires you know electricity, uh, requires you know a computer with a sufficient amount of power, connectivity to the internet. Um, some uh, literacy in terms of how to work with a computer, right? Like my parents, it took a, a couple lessons to teach them how to use a mouse. What is a mouse? And then a trackpad. Now, that was weird. Um, so I think, okay, so democratization and accessibility, increasing accessibility. When I also mentioned earlier about um, people are not willing to pay the true price of things, it's not just out of the wallet. It's also out of the labor that's required to appreciate something or to develop an understanding. And this is another aspect of um, neoliberalism that I find abhorrent to my profession as an educator, as a person that is teaching at a higher institution. In some sense, the institution is a business, the university, KTH, and it's seeking to, you know, with, with great government subsidy, uh, be self-sustaining, let's say, to bring in money from corporate uh, collaborations, government grants, etc. A neoliberal perspective of education is that the job at the end of the, 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 of the production line is the justification for one's education. If you don't get a job in what you've been educated in and you're not making money, then that education was not worth it. Um, and I, I find that perspective quite um, narrow, and it doesn't take, it doesn't account for the real purpose of education, which is to make someone become a, to help someone become a productive member of society that can think critically, uh, be able to weigh evidence and form educated opinions, to participate in um, in society in a way that is in the interest of the public good um, it's not about the job at the end of the the line the um, in in music it's kind of the same it's, you have to become an accomplished pianist you have to put in the time to understand the interaction with the body and the piano to understand the vocabulary the mechanics this time is not in a sense justified by playing in Carnegie Hall in 20 years' time. 
but through the procedure of interacting with the instrument, with interacting with the, the quote, language, the syntax of music, you develop an appreciation for, or an embodiment of being with the instrument physically. I started on this, as a personal story, I started on this path of AI music generation in 2015, applying uh, you know, some basic language modeling to textual representations of Irish traditional music transcriptions. At the time, I really didn't have um, a, a, a true understanding of what this data encompassed. I knew there was lots of data. I knew I had heard Irish traditional music performed before, and I could play some on, on an accordion, what have you. Uh, but it wasn't until a few years later that I started to think, all right, I need to build up an appreciation for this data. Where does this data come from? What are the, the dynamics at play in the collection of this data and providing it online, sharing it, playing it with others, etc. So I started to take accordion lessons with a teacher who comes from a particular region in Ireland that was online during the pandemic. We started during the pandemic. And this was really the first time in my life that I was devoting a significant amount of my time to playing my instrument. Now, the accordion is, you know, something that you... It's very physical, right? It's like this lung that you play, you've got buttons. You're not able to look at the buttons to look where your hands are on either side. You've got bass buttons on the left-hand side. You've got to breathe. This particular kind of instrument has a different note, push-pull, so the, my fingers may not change uh, position, but if I push or pull the air out or into the instrument, the pitch changes, which is very strange at first. But after spending... I don't know, a couple thousand hours on this instrument, I started to really um, understand the physical connection with the instrument and what's required in order to produce particular sounds, uh, ornaments that is acceptable within traditional Irish music in a particular region. Maybe it's unacceptable in another particular region of Ireland. But through this time, all this time that I spent playing and gaining an appreciation, it's not the end result that's the goal, it's that whole path that gives me a, an appreciation for listening to myself, approaching a new tune, listening to another performer play on that same instrument, listening to another performer play on a different instrument. I mean, it's an incredible amount of work that's necessary. So, now we have... AI systems like Performance RNN or Music Transformer, which can generate realistic sounding, human-like piano music, novel performed piano music. And again, with this uh, neoliberal position, we don't need the human musician, we don't need the human composer, we don't even need the, the mastering engineer in the recording studio because these are all automated. We can get to where we think we want you know, with a minimum amount of cost, which is good for certain sectors. Well, I don't think, I mean, the, f the first question is, 
I don't, so far as I know, that these devices can create uh, music and play it in such a manner that it has different types of interpretation, mm. but it's not necessarily something of their own. It's necess- mm. uh, perhaps a mashup of different replications. So when I listen to Daniel Barenboim play the piano and Marta Aguirre play the piano, mm. the style of playing has these differences that is perhaps why, as a listener, you go and pay to see, uh, watch them at a live concert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, one could say, as you say, different sectors have different goals and ends to means, and uh, that perhaps classical music is the last bastion that uh, might never necessarily fall, because it's very much about these very fine and uh, small details of uh, interpretation. But... In pop music, it's uh, very much more open to watered-down versions of music. Uh, so, and we have seen it with, to a certain degree, uh, with the current state of the uh, more pop cultural music, but also in uh, the creation of new films by companies like Netflix that are very algorithm-driven. Mm-hmm. So. Many critics say that they basically just try to pander to the uh, algorithm and just create that which already works, but mm. don't move towards a more creative uh, paths and don't mm. want to even do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think popular music, rock, and, and all these forms of music that have a widespread appeal are more complicated than they're given, uh, than they're assumed to be. Yes, in classical music, in modern classical music, uh, you have a wide variety of different systems at play. And um, it's, um, you know, the, the conservatory, uh, as an educational institution, can be a bit conservative in the sense of not allowing popular music outside of maybe a small class. But the, the real music is, you know, modern classical music. It involves, you know, particular signs and signals that a composer has um, enveloped an appreciation for practice over the past you know, 10, 20 years and can speak about their composition in relation to, to these these works. Popular music is seen to be vulgar and not very creative or pandering to the masses, pandering to the algorithm, perhaps. But I think it's it's more complex than than that. Popular music is actually one area where artificial intelligence is being explored a lot. And with efforts like the AI Song Contest over the past three years, you can see a growing interest in applying popular, uh, po- applying artificial intelligence to popular music. In my domain of folk music, there's similar um, condescension towards it. Folk music is seen as an unserious kind of music of uneducated people, let's say, and that's really a, an awful stereotype that is dispelled once you start to get into the nitty-gritty details of why people play this particular music the way they do on the instruments that they do. And it's a very intriguing history. Folk music isn't as 
attractive as a sandbox to apply AI than pop music. Classical music, you have some people exploring artificial intelligence um, as well. And actually, you know, in classical contexts, the application of computers, computer technology to music was, you know, a, a pioneering area in the 50s and 60s before then. Um, so there's, there's a lot of assumptions that go into conversations about applying music to AI. Music as a product, um, redundancy of humans, um, you know, the idea that, of reducing a human to just producing an audio recording from a score on, to an, on an instrument that they play. That's I mean, uh, not an accurate description of what a musician does or that they, uh, the purpose of their training is in order to enable that product. But we're in a, a constant dialogue with, um, with our world. And you had mentioned earlier the existence of these tools lowers the bar for people to create music. And some people say, isn't it wonderful everyone can create music now? All these tools are available. Other people say, why should everyone be able to create music? Right? Do um, I have a friend who uh, says, why should I listen to music created by anybody? Should a person be allowed to create music in some sense? I mean, that's quite a, a um, pessimistic view, in my opinion. But we've been surrounded by the capacity to create music f for a long time. We don't need technology to do that. But a string a rubber band around a Tupperware or around, <clears throat> around a, a yogurt you know, container, and you have a little instrument. You can make a, a whistle from a straw. There's lots of ways that you can repurpose tools in the kitchen for musical purposes, right? And it's not about creating a hit or making money on the music. It's about interacting with your sonic environments, uh, with r the elements of rhythm and, and pitch and maybe contrast, timbres, different timbres. Um, as a group, exploring, responding to each other without the use of words. Right? The music can be a huge, wide variety of things. I, I mean, to your friend, one might answer basically that there are uh, many people that don't have access to that type of training that many receive at a very early childhood mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. have this musical mindset mm -hmm. that they're now mm -hmm. able to release it with mm -hmm. but a bigger question is perhaps are these artificial intelligence music creating devices capable of creating new genres of music i mean uh, i won't start necessarily going too deep on the magnificence of beethoven but uh, uh beyond the starting of the Romantic era and being one of the pioneers of uh, the Romantic era. Uh, he has this little obscure uh, piece named the uh, Groche Fugue. And uh, Igor Stravinsky once described it as it's contemporary and it will always be contemporary. And if anyone who does not necessarily know 
it's a Beethoven piece, listens to it, it truly sounds like a piece of modern uh, music. Mm-hmm. And to think that there existed these type of human beings that could create music that had never been heard before mm-hmm. is something that is quite extraordinary. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, another composer of our time that uh, kind of creates new sounds. Uh, uh, it's a lot of it is going in uh, the f- movie industry, but Hans Zimmer, for example, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is someone that creates new uh, sounds in music that have not necessarily been heard before. Mm-hmm. Is are the current techniques capable of creating sounds that are new to us? Are they capable of creating new genres? Uh, okay, so uh, let's the first part is: Are they capable of creating new sounds that we've never heard before? Yes, and that's not news. This has been uh, an, the ability of you know synthesis engines, computer synthesis um, technology for many years since the fifties, with um, particular labs like Bell Labs in the U.S. with Max Matthews um, music language for programming computers to synthesize sound to John Chowning's uh, frequency modulation synthesis, which was a very successful, commercially successful synthesis technology that allowed one to create realistic sounding brass and, and um, uh, strings to physical modeling synthesis where you can... Uh, model the string bridge um, body uh, physics and make it sound like a string but you can also change the density of the string you can make the string as long as the you know the a bridge and see what it would sound like plucked right plucked really hard or struck with a hammer or struck with you know something so you can create sounds that you've never heard before very easily you don't need artificial intelligence to do that but, you know, modern day technology, uh, the hype is AI. You have the, um, you know, DDSP approach, differentiable digital signal processing approach that allows one to construct a neural model of, a, um, of an instrument timbre. And this is using, you know, additive synthesis techniques that have been around for dozens of years to generate sounds that are, can be in between two instruments or what have you. All of this technology has existed for a long time. Now, creating new genres. I don't know what you mean by genre, but I think you mean like music style. Or you go into a... Once I... I, You'd go into a record store and there'd be... No, there still exist record stores today. There's blues, there's jazz, there's rock, there's electronica. Uh, You know, maybe you see... Within rock, you see punk and you see all these other things that you can then search through. So I think you mean style, but genre is, is a very complicated term that involves uh, rules and value systems and things that are far outside of the actual object that you're, you're talking about. It involves people's relationships to those objects and how they speak about them. Can uh, these systems create new genres of music, or new styles of music? We'll wait and see how long these kinds of languages or these styles stick around. But again, I can say that this has already appeared and without any kind of technology. Well, I mean, you have John Cage, a composer, an American composer, laying sheet music on 
to star maps or vice versa, star maps onto sheet music and then poking holes through the, you know, random distribution of stars on these star maps. And then you lift up the star map and there you have the notes to be played in the composition. Music no one's ever heard before. Right? Or using the I Ching to decide what notes get played where. This is aleatoric music. Aleatoric music is a, a style that has, uh, has been around and is used as a device, a musical device in compositions today. And then, you know, before that you had um, music concrete, where recordings of sound, tape, pieces of tape would be spliced together. And you have another John Cage composition is Williams Mix, which says, you know, five seconds of sound from a cityscape, three seconds of sound from a, you know, a public pool, 10 seconds of sound from a busy highway. And it gives instructions for composing a piece of tape music from, you know, a collection archive of recordings from these different environments. New sounds, new music no one's ever heard of. And even before then, you had uh, George Anthiel, an American composer involving uh, uh, machines and car horns and, and boat horns in a composition. I think it's called Ballet Mechanique. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the earliest pieces involving these machines, these car horns, and creating these pieces of music. No, it's academic. It's not popular, popular music. No one's singing Ballet Mechanique. But it's, again, the involvement of technology and machines for creating sounds no one ever heard of in that context. AI is no different. And would you say that these... Uh, I mean, it's a very interesting thought to say that AI is not necessarily any different from the others, but would you say it's relatively Western-focused, this type of... I mean these uh, AIs that create music. Yeah, absolutely. So... Absolutely. There is a tendency of engineers in this area, or in many areas, to choose what is convenient, let's say, and not what is relevant. Because we have the internet, we've got lots of data available. Um, a lot of MIDI files are hosted on websites and you can scrape this MIDI and a lot of it is popular music from Europe and the US and the United Kingdom. And because of that, because somebody has gone to the effort of hand labeling, you know, chords or harmonic progressions in the Beatles data set, that data is available. And because of its convenience, the system is built using that data, using orchestral music from European composers. Um, it's difficult to read web pages that are in Chinese because I don't speak Chinese. But there's a lot of music, folk music and orchestral music, or oh, orchestral music, that's a whole totally different thing. Peking opera, Beijing opera. That's not really accessible because I can't read it and I don't know how to search for it. So, indeed, um, a lot of the music in, is in a format today that is heavily focused on Western practices, Western popular practices, and even in classical music, Western approaches to music composition. So yes, there is a high um, a, a amount of over-representation of the music culture of one particular place over others, just because of the convenience of the data. 
there are efforts to combat, combat that. So in, in music informatics, my domain, where it's basically trying to create the Google for music, let's say, to, to make the content in audio data or in sheet music or whatever accessible and rich with meaning for musicologists or um, people looking for particular uh, songs or um, data. There are efforts to enrich music informatics research with non-Western approaches, such as uh, classical Indian music and those practices. And over the past 10 years, they've been relatively successful in um, bringing into the fold music from, um, you know, music as practiced in the Middle East, music as practiced in the Far East, uh, in the Global South. Um, Africa still has some ways to, 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 to come into the fold in this research domain, but efforts are underway to even bring you know practices in Africa to this to these to the uh, to the research field. But isn't it? I think it's very. Uh, my parents uh, are involved in traditional Persian music, mm. and uh, the challenge there, as someone who's uh, personally, I've been more trained on the more European style of music, but. Uh, in pr uh, traditional Persian music, it's very much uh, not necessarily uh, uh, based on the written type of music. It's more about improvisation mm -hmm. within different mm -hmm. uh, styles and, uh, as they're called, uh, different corners of the music. So this uh, Western style of writing music, which we use basically as an alphabet we have for it, uh, if you have to go through the uh, more English version, it's ABCs, in the Italian version it's Doremi Fasolasi. It's, uh, it's very convenient to create a system that basically reads it like it's, to a certain degree, reading a text, whereas mm -hmm. in other uh, forms of music from other uh, cultures, it can be a completely different system. Mm -hmm. Yep. And how do you uh, face that challenge, basically? Yep, yep. So this is another point, uh, another reason why a lot of research in this area has focused on the convenient. Uh, with Western practices, you have this standardized notation. And it's somewhat logical in the sense of you have a staff, uh, you've got a you know, designation of pitches, these map to MIDI notes. MIDI, there's a lot of MIDI data. You've got volume, you've got measure lines, whatever, meter, keys. But in other kinds of music where the notation is foreign, a completely strange concept, you don't notate. You have a, a sort of a tonal center or an idea that you improvise around. Um, and it's the same in, in classical Indian music, quite different. You don't notate it. It's funny, in, in Irish traditional music, you don't notate. Notation is seen as sort of a necessary evil. It's a way to preserve maybe a tune and as a crib sheet. But when you learn the music, you don't learn by reading it. You learn by imitating your teacher. And they play, they play it, they play a, you know, a phrase and you repeat and you work on the rhythm, you work on the ornamentation. And there are some very strange things that happen with uh, Irish traditional music that don't appear in the score or any kind of score, any kind of representation. 
And in order to understand that, you, you have to learn this traditional way and you have to play for a dancer because the music is meant for dancing. When you play with a dancer, when you play together, you have sort of different rhythms of play. Even the, um, you know, in some places in Ireland, the C and the C sharp are treated as the same. And sometimes the, a player, a fiddle player, will play in between them. And it makes such a sound that my classically trained wife, who plays classically uh, classical flute, thinks that the musician is, is a very bad musician because they're playing this pitch that sounds awful to her. But it's actually intentional to produce this kind of sound. I can't do it on the accordion because you have a fixed uh, grid of pitches. Um, so it's inaccessible to me. And in uh, one uh, famous uh, Irish musician for that reason said the accordion is a, a horrible instrument for Irish traditional music. But now the like, Irish accordion is like quintessential. But for these other kinds of music, you have something that's completely different that you need to rethink the entire architecture of machine learning um, because you're not working on sequences. You're working on musical ideas and, and the development of these ideas, the quotation and turning them around and playing with rhythm in addition to you know the pitch material. And there's lyrics sometimes, there's dancing involved. It's a, quite a challenge for somebody who just wants to create a machine learning system to generate music. The, and that's one of my big... Um, you know, flags that I'm, well, one of my big protest signs, let's say, in this domain. So if you want to apply AI to music, that's fine. But if you want to do it in a meaningful way, you need to work with practitioners to understand the context of the music, the, the practice of the music, to understand what is accessible to your machine and what isn't accessible to the machine. Develop appropriate limitations for, you know, the evaluation of the machine in the context of music making. We can look at loss curves, we can look at validation set, all these things, but it doesn't give you an indication of the actual usefulness of your system in the context or the success of the system in the context. And it certainly doesn't give you ideas of how to move your system beyond just creating symbols and to becoming a participant in the music creation process. That's why I think that you know these systems, some create fine music for commercials and what have you reducing the cost. But for me, when I use these systems, it's creating raw materials that I then assemble, I curate from, and I sort of interact with the tradition through curating from these materials generated by little, my little machine, learning to play them, changing them, adapting them, making them my own, and then sharing them with colleagues of mine that also play instruments. And... The thing about that is we talk about types of music that are not necessarily as popular uh, or well recorded uh, as many others uh, and you walk uh, uh, on your personal blog uh, with preserving uh, Irish traditional music uh, from certain areas uh, and uh, the can you create with your machines those tiny uh, elements that are completely beyond the scope of traditional uh, Western music and have those elements that make it be the unique, have its unique element to it, mm. uh, preserve those as well or bring them back to life? 
Mm-hmm. I think you're asking, can the machine really be novel or creative? Well, not necessarily novel, but there are elements in certain types of music that uh, have this... Uh, there is this human element to it that's uh, when a music is dying when it's the number of players are becoming fewer and fewer it becomes very hard to preserve that factor that's uh, tiny playful uh, elements in the uh, mm. creation of that music mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. Uh, machines that are trying to preserve music uh, be tuned so as to create those playful little notches mm. through mm. it no, I don't think any machine is trained to preserve music. I think the, the machine, like my my machine, folk RNN, trained on Irish traditional music, trained on Swedish traditional music, say it's not an aim to preserve music. Um, what is it? Well, it's a product of research, looking at how representation can be. Uh, it can impact the music generation process. It's also a, a study in how a machine might become a co-creative partner in um, traditional music. It's also looking at how such a machine provides another way to engage with the tradition. It's in no way a preservation or even a, um, a representation of the music as practiced by the community, as practiced by um you know, students of, of learning from their teacher, etc. It's just, it's a trick. It's a parlor trick that is a very fancy statistical machine that can put together sequences that when interpreted by a real person or somebody who is under, who can understand, uh, who's trained in the tradition, can be played in such a way that people would be fooled into thinking that this is a real traditional tune. But it goes beyond that. The system can do things that are quite unlike what you find in the tradition. And in some cases, these mistakes are of such a kind or such a type that a person from the traditions could say, I don't know of any tune that does that little figure. And I wonder why there has been no tune that does that little figure, because it completely fits within the language, the syntax of the tradition. So that's, a, in a sense, a mistake of the system to have created something that is unlike anything that is in the corpus that's been trained on, but it's a success of the system in that it has created something new that a, an expert in the tradition says, I don't know why, I don't know of any tune that does that, but it should. It's completely appropriate. And of course, there are other outputs of the system that create things that are failures, total failures, don't resemble at all Irish traditional music or Swedish traditional music. Sometimes the failures are um, charming. As a <clears throat> as a composer, I want to work with those failures and sort of explore uh, what went wrong and how to bring it within my language. Let's say, and then there's others just sort of trash. Like there's nothing. Interesting, noteworthy about these this output of the system that it's just totally forgettable. So, th- that answer your question? 
Yeah, I mean, that's perhaps the most fascinating part about it, that it goes beyond the corpus that it has been trained on. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one could look at that and say it's a mistake, but also one could say it's perhaps a, mm -hmm. a new thing that has been created. And that's the thing that you see time and time again when you give people, creative people, tools, that they use them in ways never intended. Um, they find ways to break the system and exploit those uh, those interesting behaviors that result. My colleague um, Oded Bental is a composer, and he's been working with me on this on this research for a while since I started. Basically, he wrote a piece um, exploring this breaking of the system. And so, within the Bilfokaranen system, you have a parameter called temperature, which controls um, the adventurousness of the sampling at the end. So, as you increase temperature the probability of making a strange choice of a symbol becomes larger and larger. As you decrease it, the system becomes more conservative and will just start to repeat itself in a conservative fashion, like arpeggiating some chord. So he, in one movement of the, the work, he generated some stuff, and then he generated some stuff with the temperature increased. And then he increased the temperature again, generated, increased again, generated. And you can see through the timeline of the, this movement of his work, the system become crazier and crazier with its sort of musical language. But crazier in a sense that most of what it had generated for him was he discarded. And he only, he was heavily curating the outputs. He's a composer. He's, and he had a, a particular vision of how this movement would go. But it was exploring the breaking, the eventual breaking of the, the system that became this idea of the movement. And you see that. You see people using misusing systems like the with the 303 synthesizer, which was meant to create um, rhythm tracks for people to practice jazz or, or what have you. And then it became, somebody found it at a thrift store and it became the item to make an acid dance track. Right with the twisting the knobs and making these crazy sounds, total misuse of the rhythm system, the accompaniment system, but one that led to the creation of a whole style of music and a whole practice of music. And you have circuit bending. Do you know about this? Yes, but please uh, say. I yeah, mean, yeah, circuit bending, where you take really, yeah. you take an electronic toy and you sort of perform a lobotomy on it, you dissect it, you connect things at random in the circuitry, and you create all sorts of weird sounds that are then used as a, in a performance or in a creative context. Total misapplication or misuse of the technology to create uh, something new. And it's the same way with artists and AI. You have prompt engineering today with stable diffusion. You know, if you add to certain terms like trending on art station and high resolution and other things, you get these different effects. And so this stable diffusion isn't just a way to create a raccoon eating a taco on a spaceship, but you, you can bend the circuitry in the system by adding all these other descriptors that make it uh, oriented in the latent space to bring about these effects at the output of the, of the image. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's a sense of really artistic beauty to uh, the idea of a device being created and some others just taking that device and 
testing it and bringing out something that the creators mm-hmm. themselves had never anticipated the voice would be able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. However, there are those, uh, especially uh, in the visual arts at the current moment, uh, with uh, uh, OpenAI's Dolly 2, Uh that Uh put into question, uh, perhaps one could say it's slightly because they fear their jobs might be uh, in uh, threat, but there have been many artists that have been saying what uh, Dolly creates is uh, in no way whatsoever art. Mm -hmm. What what do you think about that? I mean, do, do you think that these devices are creating art or are they just replicators? And I think what we discussed is an indicator that it's not exactly that. But where do you think, why are so many artists critical of these uh, devices? Mm-hmm. I think there's a danger here in um, equating art <coughs> with the product, again, like music equating music with the product that comes out of it. Um, There's also a distinction that might be drawn between art and craft. Um, There's a recognition that in the uh, media industry you have people that are paid to create storyboards, to create mock-ups, to do branding, illustration... Uh, these are uh, people that have, you know, developed a professional practice of translating the needs of a customer into the look of, a, let's say, a package for medicine, or a label on a wine bottle, or um, uh, illustration in a New Yorker article, um, and then, you know, that's what's one thing. But then you have other practitioners who are creating works for museums, um, for private collectors. You have these totally different realms, and you can't call all of the people that are participating in these artists, right? Much the way you might not call everyone who plays an instrument a musician. I mean, why not call everyone who plays an instrument I mean, is, 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 That becomes the question of what, uh, what an artist is, which is a very complex one, but yeah, mm-hmm. completely agree. Again, what a musician is, you can see it in the neoliberal framework that it's someone who creates recordings or someone who plays at a concert. An artist is someone, uh, uh, image artist, a tangible medium, someone who creates a sculpture, someone who creates a, a painting for hanging up in a gallery, a tangible item. An um, an artist also may illustrate a story, illustrate a children's book, create a mock-up for a commercial. And this, it could be very broad. But again, art and being an artist is not just creating that product, but it is interacting with one's environment, cultural environment, social environment, economic system, political system, translating an experience or uh, a sense into something that is that can be sensed in another way uh so i think what i'm saying is that there's a lot of weight that can be given to the impact of stable diffusion or the impact of dali or these systems that appear to make redundant humans for creating these 
we might as well just we are going to hire prompt engineers now for our arts teams and use the stable diffusion engine yeah that's probably going to be true in some industries but that doesn't mean art ends again going back to my a, a point a while ago of society needs to make a decision to pay the true cost of things and to recognize a value in culture and a value in renewing culture as we proceed through this timeline of you know political systems and war and strife and joy etc and the pandemics and what have you we're responding to our time and the situations we find ourselves in and that's not going to be replaced by a system completely divorced from the experience of being human it's a rather human centered view i mean we can go post human view and say you know the experience of other things like uh, a space or uh, an animal or you know a tree translate that into other experiences it brought perspectives here yeah i mean at the end of this it's just that such things as music are human centric we cannot take away the human from them at that's right it's a human activity uh, so there might indeed many things might be one day automated but i don't really think there's going to be you cannot really pull away the human from uh, the whole of it although i do think to myself will we one day be going to a carnegie hall concert that is completely composed by a ai mm-hmm. or not uh, mm-hmm. completely composed what does that mean well it's uh, of course maybe there is a need for a prompt to be written to make a composition but uh, to an ai but at the end uh, it has created the whole of the composition mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If, if you tell it write a symphony for me mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and it writes a, a symphony for movements and you go and watch it but will we do we is it are we so egocentric about our love of ourselves as mm-hmm. humans that mm-hmm. we might say I'm not going to go and watch a computer computers come up if yeah that, that's interesting i mean uh, in terms of research questions you see people in the past 20 30 years writing algorithms trying to build a system that can write bach like chorales uh, and um, completing Beethoven's 10th symphony, completing Schubert's unfinished symphony, completing Mahler's 10th symphony, whatever, with these machines, and all of the uh, media that comes from these kinds of um, headlines, right? If we compose an alg- if we generate an algorithm that can compose a four-movement symphony in the style of Beethoven... What's the what's the value in that? Do we need Bach chorales? Is there is there a need for Bach chorales? I mean, we have modern uh, styles of vocal writing that are creating totally different sound worlds than the approach that Bach would take or people of his time. Why are we imitating? Why are we spending so much effort imitating? practices that are in some sense totally explored right are there still rules of four-part voice leading that have yet to be discovered in some sense of writing a Bach 
corral can be a demonstration of the success of an algorithm for learning the rules from a data set and what have you. But at the end of the day, the application that would be more interesting is to misuse it in creating new things. And so with the Folk RNN system, I'm totally uninterested in creating the best reel or the best double jig. The most, um, I'm totally uninterested in fooling people into believing something AI generated was uh, human generated. It comes from the tradition. It's a lost tomb. I'm much more interested in the, um, the use of this system for expressing my experience, day-to-day experience as a professor in Sweden with a, a, with a family, let's say. And my dog is a, you know, a subject to sev- several of my um, pieces. Giving life to these artificially created tunes and translated in my own voice. Right. Using this system to create something new rather than to imitate what I've learned in Ireland. It's uh, something to think about, really. Mm. <laughs> uh, but if we move to the ethics of it, do you mm. think, are there any sorts of music that shouldn't be created by AI? Uh, I mean, there was uh, this rapper, uh, FN Mecca, uh, that was basically trained on corpuses of uh, gangbang rap, and uh, it was it promoted very offensive things that perhaps are not necessarily very alien to that mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. rap, but immediately it caused a lot of controversy because it was a mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, a real person saying those things; it was a computer that was trained on real people saying those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are, as a developer as a, and as an artist, do you see problems in creating certain so- sorts of music? Oh, there's there's a whole host of um, interesting and necessary questions of ethics in any application of machine learning, any application, any development of technology, really. Um, I'm... It, th- this this requires reflection in a constant way, and it's not satisfying from an engineering perspective to not have a derivation and a clear point um, by point set of rules to follow. That you should not do this, you should not do that. Do not apply your algorithm to this. That's not applicable that doesn't happen in ethics ethics is a conversation it's a um, a constant reevaluation of one's values um, of one's assumptions ethics is about what is good what is bad and how do we know and there are a variety of frameworks that one can use to talk about these things um yeah, I mean, I've written uh, a bit about ethics of AI and music, and there's far more questions than answers in these uh, in these writings. So in some sense, it's very unsatisfying to not find that. But it's the process of questioning, of engaging with the potential harms of a technology and responses to... Um, frictions that you that one would observe in a community of practitioners that see me applying algorithms to 
you know, a culture that they, uh, they cherish, let's say, a collision of value systems in that sense. So we as engineers have to be careful and uh, have to reflect upon the consequences of our actions from the collection of the data, from the use of data found on the internet, from the deployment of systems online, uh, making the model weights available, reproducible research requires, you know, you make the products of your research available, but perhaps somebody could misuse what you have created for aspects that would be offensive to entire communities. Um, yeah, we need, uh, we need reflection. On it's this. it's always in these questions, I think, that, that we just need discussion and uh, not necessarily solid answers. Mm-hmm. But just discussion uh, and action, actually. Uh, from my reflections on the ethics of what I'm doing with applying a language model to textual representations of Irish traditional music, I developed a, um, a desire to pay penance, in a sense, uh, to, to understand the frictions that were being caused by my uh, research requires some personal sacrifice and, and education on my part. And so that was one of a, a major motivating factor in sort of stopping what I was doing and actually putting myself in the context to learn the music the way it is taught today read as much as I could on the history of the music and it was as it was practiced, you know, many years ago, read about the politics of Ireland, read about the politics of the music, the nationalistic aspects of the, the music, um, attend summer schools, submit myself, you know, participating in a class with, you know, 15 other kids 11 years old, 12 years old, and they have a musicianship that far exceeds mine. And uh, learning in that environment with them, learning about the stories of the, the this teacher learned this tune from so-and-so, and now we're going to learn it this way. And um, The need to reflect on what I had been doing and learn the value system that was in conflict with my engineering was necessary. And so... It required reflection, but it also required action on my part. And now I feel as if I, um, I can understand where, the, ref- where the, the friction comes from, and I feel like I can respond to it in ways that um, co- are convincing, in a sense, that I've paid, my do- I've paid my dues. I continue to. I run an Irish music learner session here. At KTH, uh, every other Sunday, we meet and learn tunes in the traditional way. And so fostering a community of enthusiasts of Irish traditional music in Stockholm and continuing to uh, contribute to the health of this group, even though it may be small, like 10 10 people, um, is one way of me contributing back to the tradition. And nothing about this session has has anything to do with Machine-generated tunes, by the way. That's completely separate. That's a totally different practice. It's just love for music, I could say. Yeah, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, um, 
Is it preserving traditions perhaps as well, to a certain degree for you? Well, first of all, I've worked really hard on, on um, becoming sort of adept at performing the music. And if I take a break, then it starts to decay. And so in a very self-interested way, this is a means of um, keeping the pressure on myself to keep up my practice, let's say. But in another sense, it's a, a, a social activity that is very um, satisfying to play with others, to teach tunes, to, to play a tune well. To feel the rhythm is very satisfying. So it's it's like um, yeah, it is it is love of the music, but it's also uh, an enjoyment of how it makes me feel. And uh, let us finish with what we started. Uh, how do you see the future of AI in music, especially when you uh, discussed quite a lot? paying the price will people do you think in the long-term future start paying the price or mm. what do you see as the future of both perhaps more niche types of music mm -hmm. and more popular types of music mm -hmm. there's a great book written by a french philosopher and economist jacques attali called noise uh, it was translated from french in 1977 to english and it provides a really interesting and strange look at music as a um, as a forecast for other aspects of the world uh, music he portrays music as a um, you know going through several stages one being sacrifice another being reproduction and so on and now we're we're going into this next phase composition where it's much less of a global enterprise and more of a local enterprise um, music is becoming coming back to communities in some sense i think is the argument the text itself is not written for engineers it's and and as a you know maybe budding humanist in the sense of reading more and more essays in, in humanism, science, technology studies, it was difficult for me to come to grasp with what he was, what Atali was trying to say. But I think the future of music holds that it's going to be um, more and more focused in the, in the local community, I would say. Um, you're still going to have concerts, you're still going to have musicians, you're still going to have composition. Uh, but it's, it's going to be, whatever it is, it's going to proceed. AI is not going to take this away from us. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, from a developer's perspective, I think that we have to start moving towards a more humanistic approach towards our work as well, and think about not just the technical aspects of it, but both the logical and uh, emotional impacts of it, more as it's becoming uh, something that affects almost every element of our lives. Uh, but I think that if one thing will continue to exist uh, after the automation uh, uh, continues to expand through these uh, AI models is art and music.
Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting thing to think about. Mm-hmm. And you know, the automation is going to be automated as well. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, I would say now, thank you very much for participating in this podcast. My pleasure. I hope I didn't run on. I mean, my my thinking process is completely nonlinear, and it's <laughs> no. I think it was uh, absolutely fantastic. I yeah. do a lot of bouncing around. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you.